Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Good evening and welcome to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Alameen. We're broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM. And we are streaming live at WCEV1450.com. If you are new to the Radio Islam family, we welcome you. Thanks for tuning in. We're on every day from 6 to 7 p.m. Central, coming to you from the wonderful city of Chicago, Illinois. And you can keep up with us by following and liking our pages on social media. You will find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. And you can also check out those episodes that you have missed out on by going to wherever you get your podcast from. So if that's TuneIn, iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud, you will find us at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. Uh, and also, don't forget, you can always go to RadioIslam.com. Uh, there you will be able to see some things that you won't be able to uh, anywhere else, right? So uh, there will be guest bios. Uh, there will be uh, sometimes articles. Uh, there's just a lot more content there uh, exclusively uh, that you will find, as I say, not anywhere else, RadioIslam.com. All right, family, uh, for those of you who would like to uh, join the conversation tonight by phone, we've already given you our information for uh, our social media, so you can get to us on Facebook or Twitter. But if you'd like to give us a call, you can do so at 312-750-1178. That's 312-750-1178. We've been uh, making, our, making our way, having a few Having a few technical uh, matters, uh, but here we are. Here we are, and we say it quite often. Uh, I'm here with my, my brother, my brother, uh, my brother Ibrahim Beg, the impressive one. Uh, he is on the boards, uh, engineer extraordinaire, and we are already ten minutes into our hour. So this hour goes really fast, but I'm really pleased to tell you we have joining us tonight uh, on the phone, all the way from the UK right now, uh, Sister Naima B. Robert. Uh, and she is, actually, she's the author of one of the books that uh, I had the, the pleasure of having conversation about recently with uh, Leila Abdullah-Poulos. Uh, you know, she and I, we talk on a monthly basis about different books, uh, and she's introduced me to Muslim fiction. And I was just so astonished to find that uh, Naima uh, B. Robert has written so much. Uh, but let me tell you just a quick bit about her before we bring her on. Uh, she's an author of multicultural literature and founding editor of UK-based Muslim women's publication Sisters Magazine, born in Leeds to a Scottish father and Zulu mother, both from South Africa. Robert grew up in Zimbabwe, attended university in England, um, converted to Islam in 1998. And currently, Robert divides her time between London and Cairo with her three sons and two daughters. We welcome you. Assalamu alaikum. All right. I'm so glad that we have you uh, have you on the phone. We appreciate you uh, uh, braving the time difference. Uh, <laughs> so like fine. <laughs> yeah. So um, I was really um, you, you have been quite busy as an author. Um, you I mean, and I, OK, so I was looking um, I was looking and I saw. Uh, that you have, well, where is this at? Oh, from my sister's lips, 
Uh, she wore red trainers mm -hmm. going to Mecca from Somalia with love, Ramadan moon, and many uh, and many others. Uh, the book that I just, as I was mentioning in the intro, I uh, had the opportunity to talk with uh, uh, my friend Layla Abdullah Poulos about mm -hmm. was Black Sheep. And mm -hmm. this was such a packed, a packed book. So much, uh, so much was in it. So I'm glad to have you on to, to get the, the perspective that matters most, uh, the writer, the author. Uh, what, what was your, no. what was your motivation for for writing uh, this piece, this book? Well, Bismillah. Um, alhamdulillah, I've been blessed to have published a book pretty much every year. Some books in the early days were, you know, sort of maybe a couple, three books a year. But in general, I was able to maintain uh, having a, a book a year come out with different publishers. Mm -hmm. um, and Black Sheep was my third YA, no, no, my fourth YA novel. Mm -hmm. um, I have three others before it. And to be honest, I, at that stage, the, the, the story, what happens with me is that the stories come to me. Mm. Uh, I very rarely kind of go looking for the stories. This story about Misha and Dwayne, it came to me in a dream. Really? And the original uh, story was, uh, was called South of the River. Mm -hmm. And I knew I wanted to write a story set in the black community, in the black British community. Mm -hmm. And I knew that Islam was going to play a part there somewhere. And the, the story uh, in my head and the one that I dreamt about was like a trilogy. And uh, a lot more happened in the, the one in my head than actually uh, happened in Black Sheep because I thought that I would get through the pre-Islam period really quickly mm -hmm. and, and and sort of jump in where Dwayne is Muslim and he's giving the hour to Misha. And in the original story in my head, Misha becomes Muslim and she has to deal with, obviously, her mother's uh, dis displeasure and disapproval of this choice. And so that whole, you know, being a young Muslim couple in South London, coming from black British families, dealing with the community problems and community issues and all of that stuff, that was actually the original story. Mm. But then when I started doing the research and reading and watching and listening to, you know, basically my source material, mm. I, just, I just was drawn into the richness and the complexity of Dwayne and Nisha's lives before the Shahada. So the Shahada comes in, I think, maybe, what, three quarters of the way through or something? Mm -hmm. um, and in the story now, of course, you know, Nisha uh, has a different storyline. But just I thought I would share with your listeners that the original story in my head was actually more a story of these two who both become Muslim and have to kind of struggle their way through that, rather than, you know, uh, Dwayne and Misha's issues with each other and their peers and class and race and all of that stuff. <laughs> so uh, the book really just took on a life of its own, to be honest. Mm, okay. So came to you in a dream. That is, uh, that is yeah. something. Now, the, um, uh, there, there, are, there are definitely similarities that we see from uh, United States um, uh, culture and issues uh, mm -hmm. for young adults. Uh, that we see present also uh, for those youth in the UK. Um, but mm -hmm. there was something that was mentioned uh, by uh, that was markedly different about the way this story was told. Uh, and that was with regard to, uh, as, as Layla mentioned to me, that uh, there hasn't been a U.S. author that has taken on the conversion of, of thugs 
right? Those of, of roughnecks in the same way. Um, now, I mean, they, they, they could be there, but um, nothing came to mind immediately. So oh. the way you handled that uh, was, was quite, uh, quite interesting. What, what, was your, what was your thought process in, in approaching that, uh, that, that aspect? I, I, that's actually a really interesting point because I think you're right. I think um, in YA in general, when it comes to Muslim stories, mm-hmm. you'll find that girls dominate. Mm. Girls' stories are getting much more airplay, especially now that the big publishing houses are actually publishing Muslim YA authors. Right. You will find that girls' perspectives and girls' stories dominate. So even finding a Muslim YA with a male protagonist is quite rare. Okay. And then you're right. I can't think of any of any novels that have kind of approached many stories from, certainly not any Muslim stories from the male, you know, thug perspective. But I mean, for me, this story is actually like, almost like a historical record. Um, at the time, I was uh, attending a masjid in Brixton, which is in South London. Mm-hmm. And this was the story that was taking place in the 90s where you had these, you know, thug, you know, guys in gangs and stuff who were becoming Muslim and were having to negotiate basically those in their group or in their clique or in their gang who hadn't become Muslim or who had become Muslim but were still on that life. Um, And the choices that they had to make with regard to that, that's all very real. Um, And the... um, the, the, the book itself and the, the, the whole trajectory, Dwayne's trajectory is like an archetype because you will find many nonfiction works that are based on interviews and research of boys in South London at that time mm. who actually accepted Islam and had to deal with practically everything Dwayne has to deal with. So in a way, it's kind of like an archetype. Mm-hmm. But I really wanted to, to tell that story because I knew it was the history of the community that I was in. Um, and I wanted to bring that to life for young people because you know what it's like. Um, if we don't tell our stories, they, they go unwritten and they, they go unremembered. That's right. And this was a very particular time in the British Muslim community history because things have moved on now. Things are very different now to when they were, the, how they were then. Mm. But I wanted, because I was in that place at that time, I wanted to capture that story before it was gone forever. Mm. Now, you also do something that is not always... Uh, that is not always easy to do, uh, and that is whether you're uh, male or female, it is writing authentically for the opposite gender, where it does not sound mm-hmm. like, um, it doesn't appear like it's like like you're doing a marionette, you know, um, mm-hmm. and uh, given that authentic voice, would you say that your success in that regard was due to having such rich uh, source material and the research that you did um, prior to putting pen to paper, so to speak? I, I think so. I mean, I think I was obviously I listened to and really enjoyed the interview that you did with Sister Layla because it really brought the whole book back to me and the, the thought, you know, the, the whole writing process and just that world, you know, that story world, it really brought it back to me. Mm-hmm. But with Dwayne, Dwayne is such a real character. You know, he's a voice in my head, you know, so 
I was gratified to hear that, you know, later found that it was very authentically a 16-year-old boy. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I guess because I had done, you know, a lot of research, I read a lot of books, I watched a lot of films, I, I, I read lyrics, you know, to the songs that were going around at that time. I, you know, I listened to poetry, I read poetry. So I, I wanted to really get under the skin of the character. So I, you know, if it worked, then alhamdulillah, I'm grateful. But Dwayne was real to me. You know, he was not, uh, you know, a character on paper. He was real. And I said to Leila that when I first started writing the book, certainly mm-hmm. in my, my dream version, Dwayne was the nemesis. You know, Dwayne mm-hmm. was Misha's nemesis. Right. I didn't like Dwayne. I saw him <laughs> as a selfish young man yeah. who was going to destroy Misha's life. That's, that's how I saw him. Misha was my baby. Like, I was rooting for Misha. Misha was my girl. You know? <laughs> I wanted her to go to university. I wanted her to be high-flying. And I saw that Dwayne didn't have really much to offer her. Mm-hmm. So I didn't like him at the beginning. But I guess when I started writing, and, and this for me always happens, the characters really do come alive and they start to take over the story. So as the author, as the writer... I'm literally just a tool. I'm, 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 I'm a vessel for this, the character's story. So many things happen in my books, all of them, that I didn't plan initially. It's just that that's what the character would do, you know? And, and, and I love the way the stories unfold because as a writer, you're, I feel you're constantly interrogating the characters. Well, how do you feel now? Like the internal voice, mm-hmm. you know, uh, if you've read the book, you'll know that Dwayne has got this internal voice that kind of like, beats him over the head from time to time. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely loved that. I really enjoyed that in writing that internal voice and hearing, <laughs> you know, this kind of black British type of like, what are you doing, man? What are you saying? What are you saying? Like, what's wrong with you? You know, and, and he, he was real. You know, what can I say? So, you know, that's, I guess that's why he comes across as authentic because he really was real to me. Yes. Yes. Let me let me kind of go outside of, 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 of Black Sheep and ask a question just about your writing overall uh just Mm -hmm. in general uh and it goes back to uh, and i don't want to just harp on it but i just i feel like it's such an important uh point for uh aspiring uh writers and for people to be able to kind of break down the 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 end result to see the creative process how Mm -hmm. important is the is the research um, how how much time do you give to that, uh, and is that a part of of all of the work that you've done? Yeah, I think because the I've I've been researching ever since my second book. Um, my first book was the Swirling Hijab, which is a very simple rhyming story about a little girl playing with her mother's hijab. It's a picture book. Mm-hmm. The second book that I came out with was commissioned by a publisher. And they wanted to explore the theme of Islamic art. And I knew a little bit about Islamic art, but I didn't know that much, certainly not enough to write a really beautiful children's story. Mm -hmm. So I started researching it. And I think ever since then, because I'm in the multicultural children's genre and multicultural YA genre, Mm -hmm. um, I've, I've always, research has nearly always played a part in the writing process for me. But when it comes to YA, uh, young adult novels. I never believed I could write a novel, to be honest. I wrote uh, um, From My Sister's Lips, mm-hmm. which is more like a memoir. Okay, it's a memoir interspersed with 
narratives from other women that I interviewed. But to, it was an, it was easy work. Okay, it took like six weeks that it was done because it was all in my wow. head. Wow. <laughs> so I didn't need to do any research really with that. Mm-hmm. When it came to my first young adult novel, again, a story that appeared to me in a dream uh, from nowhere because it's a story. It's called From Somalia with Love, mm-hmm. and it I think was the first and one of the very few young adult novels with Somali protagonists, uh, because at that time, the Somali community was still quite young everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know really whether we've made it into uh, to, to having Somali protagonists yet. Um, but anyway, that was, that was my first book. And because I'm not Somali, <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, I really only knew very little about the culture, I had to research. I had to sit with Somali girls. I had to listen to Somali boys. I spent time on Somali youth forums. You know, I read their poetry. I learned about the history. You know, I, I learned some of the language to be able to use it in the book. Mm-hmm. So um, as, as a result, mashallah, a lot of people assumed I was Somali because my first novel <laughs> was basically about Somali community. What um, made you, what made so you want book, to do that? Mm-hmm. Um, you said that one came to you in a dream also? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, I never believed I could write a novel. It wasn't even in my head to write a novel. Yeah. But that story, I went on a on a weekend retreat with a Somali youth group. Mm-hmm. And that night, when I had been, you know, spending time with the girls and listening to their chatter and everything, yeah. that night, I just had this dream about a girl who's 14, she's Somali, she's a poet, and her father, who's long lost, comes basically back from the dead, so to speak, mm-hmm. into her life in London. And what is that going to look like? Okay, what, 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 what's, what's going to happen there? And literally, I spoke with my agent, and she introduced me to a, to a publisher, and they were like, we love the sound of that idea, let's do it. So, subhanAllah, that was it. I got my contract for my first novel, and then I was like, oh, now I have to write this. Okay, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, lots of research for, from Somali with Love. Boy versus Girl, again, not my community. It's set in the Pakistani community up north in England. Mm-hmm. Again, a different culture. I was more aware of that culture, so I did less research for that one, but I still had to. Far From Home is a historical novel set in Zimbabwe. Tons of research to make sure that it's historically sound. And also, because Far From Home is also told in two voices, as you can tell, I kind of like the two voices narrative, <laughs> uh, the dual narrative thing. Yeah. Far From Home is told in the voice of a an indigenous Zimbabwean girl called Tariro, mm-hmm. set in the 70s. And then the story in part two, it goes to a white, a white Zimbabwean girl, Katie, in the 90s. And so for me, the, the, obviously, it's, it's a completely different culture, but I'm, I grew up in Zimbabwe, so I was aware of a lot of the historical context. But to get it right and to make sure it's accurate and to also to give your novel the life that it needs, you have to dig a lot deeper. Yeah. You know, what did they used to wear at the time? What did they eat? What did they value? You know, how did they speak to each other at that time in the 60s and the 70s? You know, so you've got to do all of that research. Do and you then ever for get... me, the challenge was far from home. Mm was to be able to write as a white protagonist. Because mm. I grew up in Zimbabwe, right. where it was a black majority country. This is now in majority rule. It's after independence, okay? Mm-hmm. So there was only a minority of white people living there still. And it, there was still a lot of tension, you know? Like, we didn't all just get along and everything. There was a lot of tension, there was a lot of racial tension. So to be able to write a character like Katie with any kind of empathy, I had to do a lot of work on that. And also because 
I didn't know these types of girls growing up. So I didn't know what their family dynamics were. I didn't know what their parents really spoke about at home. So I had to do a lot of reading uh, to get under the skin of a Rhodesian family. But, you know, alhamdulillah, I think I managed to do it. So all the books needed research, except she wore red trainers. I didn't let, do any research let, she wore red ask, trainers. I just wrote that thing. Let me, let me ask this. Do you, uh, is there a point where once you get the inspiration to, to write, the, uh, write the book, you feel like I've got this story and I need to put it down, yeah. Does the excitement that you have for bringing the idea to fruition, does it ever start to kind of chafe against the necessary research? Uh, do you feel like, uh, do you get to a point where you're like, okay, I, I've, I've, I've read enough, I've researched enough, let me just get this out and, and put, it, put it out mm, there? Mm. I like that question. I think for me, because, I, because I'm, I'm in a position where I'm writing and I'm telling other people's stories. Mm -hmm. So there has to be some respect there. Mm -hmm. You can't just say whatever you want and just like, yeah, whatever. Like, I'm just telling the story. Right. Uh, the research makes me comfortable to tell my story. If I don't know, like, okay, I'll give you an example. I went to Zanzibar a few months ago mm -hmm. and we went to the slavery museum in Zanzibar, which if anybody goes to Zanzibar, they really, really must go to this museum. Okay. This slavery museum in Zanzibar is actually about the East African slave trade, not the transatlantic slave trade that everyone knows about. This is the one basically between East Africa and the Arabian Peninsula. Okay. Mm -hmm very little known about it. I learned so much that I did not know at all. And it really, it, it really, really moved me and appalled me, actually, to the point that I thought, I have to write about this. And so the story started formulating in my head. Now, I know what the story is already, because I know the brothers and the sister so far. <laughs> I know kind of which tribe they come from, which part of Africa, how they managed to get to East Africa, you know, to the port in Zanzibar, and then what happened to them afterwards. However, I cannot tell that story until I have done my research. I can't write it down, you know, like I can write little bits and pieces, but I cannot actually tell the story with any degree of authenticity until I've actually done the research and I know my facts. And then I will use those facts as like the, uh, the scaffolding, if you like, for being able to now creatively and imaginatively explore the emotions and the color of the world. Um, but until I have that scaffolding, I, I'm, I'm paralyzed, basically. I can't do anything. That's me, personally. <laughs> okay, so I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this on a, on a much smaller uh, note. All right, there's a certain amount of research that goes into, uh, uh, for what I do, talking to, to different people every day. Mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. yours is so much more... Uh, in depth, and I can, I would imagine that the feeling that that I have, I feel like um, I, I take something from everyone uh, that I speak to. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And for you, do you feel like because the research is so in depth, uh, and you're telling these stories, and you're and you're doing it with the intention of being authentic and doing uh, and giving respect to those uh, to those mm -hmm. stories, how does that impact you? Um, as, as, you know, as you continue to write, as you continue to expand yourself? SubhanAllah, I really think it's like with any kind of learning. Um, it expands you intellectually, emotionally. Um, you're just a different person. Uh, even having just read the books that I read uh, to, to prepare for Black Sheep, mm -hmm. I was a different person because I had glimpsed a world that I knew nothing about before whether it's the world of gangs or, you know, inner city, what you guys call projects, 
um, or even, you know, private schools, for example, because I had to do research into how private schools in England work because Misha goes to one. So I really think it's a, an extremely enriching experience to, to, to be, you know, and, and a privilege really to read on people that you may not have read up on, you know, if you weren't necessarily working on this project. So just like you get something from every, every guest, and the research that you do on every guest, I feel like I get something from every book. I'm the one who's enriched. Readers may think that it's them, but it's actually me. I'm the <laughs> one who feels privileged to have been privy to these worlds that I'm exploring in the books. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I can write it in a way that people feel is, you know, on point in the sense that it's authentic and they feel that it's real and it's, it tells a genuine story, then, you know, I'm grateful to Allah for that. Alhamdulillah. Uh, you mentioned that... Uh, in your mind, if, at first, initially, Dwayne was, you didn't want to like Dwayne, <laughs> right? You nope. didn't want to like him. Um, but one nope. of the things that I gathered uh, in, in, in the conversations that I had in, in, in reading is that he was also a sign of the, uh, because there's a lack of support. And it, it can go either way, right? You could say that young mm-hmm. black males um, often do not have uh the father figures in certain environments, mm-hmm. uh, and that's mm-hmm. why Tony was such a uh, an important mm. part for him, an important um, um, you know uh, as a mentor, mm. right? As an anchor, yes. And but then to look at at Demisha, who had who had support, right? But runs mm-hmm. the risk of the assumption as we we worry about our our young uh, our daughters being victimized um, mm. and being taken advantage of. Did you? In writing, and, and as you moved along f- uh, away from him being a uh, being a villain, <laughs> did you begin mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. see him more as uh, just just as someone in need? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, essentially, what you realize is that he's just a kid. Yeah, you know, he is just a kid who's trying to figure everything out. You know, he is not Juki. You right. see. And uh, if you've read the book, then you you will see that uh, you know you you will know who Juki is. Mm-hmm. Juki is the the real bad guy. Like he is. You couldn't have Juki as a protagonist. I don't feel mm-hmm. because obviously you know in the book he's set up as like what Dwayne could be if he gave in to the life of the street and criminality and and violence as well. Because as as later said, Juki is named Juki because you know he likes knives. Uh, he likes to cause people pain, so he's a bit, he's sadistic in that sense. Mm. So you couldn't have him as a as a main character because I think that he he's already um, spoiled. That's that's uh, Tony's Dwayne, brother. Ah, no, not Tony. Juki. That's, that's Tony. Not... Tony is a big man. Yeah, Tony is a big man. He's like he's grown past all that stuff, and he was you know he's a big man. You know he was the, the head of 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 uh, he was the leader of the gang. Uh, he was the mentor for all the youngers, okay, the young boys that he was bringing up with him. So Tony's not in this. No, no, Jookie I'm saying Tony. Marvin is is Tony's brother, right? Whose whose nickname is Jookie? Is that him? Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and uh, and so so with, uh, with you know Jookie is kind of like past the point, and Dwayne, if he had continued on his trajectory without Tony's intervention. Without Misha's intervention, it's quite conceivable that he would have ended up where Juki is in the story. But he's not there yet. He okay. still has a softness to him. He still has an openness to him. So when Misha's telling him off, of course he pretends not to listen, but he does listen. 
you know, um, when she's, you know, talking to him about using the N-word, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, for him, it's not even a thing. Like, what do you mean? But, of course, because she's coming from a different intellectual tradition, Mm -hmm. you know, she's coming from a different culture almost. And, of course, she's well-read and she's educated and she's she's been exposed probably to pro-black and conscious ideas. So she is the one that brings that to him and says, you know, no, language is power and you should know that. Uh, and a word like this has been used to denigrate us. Why would you just use that? You know, so, so even these conversations that we have within the black community, I like to see them being played out between Misha and Dwayne, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and, you know, for example, the way Dwayne sees school and the way Misha sees school, completely different. Mm-hmm. Because they're literally from those different sides of the tracks. Misha and her whole family see education as school, as something that is going to propel her, that is something necessary, that is something honorable, you know, that she is going to do well, regardless. Right. Dwayne, on the other hand, he's in a school where low expectations abound. His teachers don't expect anything from him. If you remember the scene where he actually aces the maths test, because mm-hmm. he's actually very good at maths, but he's because of the system and the peers and the culture within the school, he's always just, you know, like not made any effort. And then that, for what's because of Nisha, because of that cat. Hello? Naima? Asalaamu Alaikum? Okay. I, I think we've lost her, but we're going to get her back. Uh, Radio Islam family, we're going to take a short break. Uh, we are talking with Naima B. Robert, uh, author of Multicultural Literature, uh, founding editor of UK-based Muslims Women Publication Sisters Magazine. We'll be back in just a moment. The Syrian Community Network, with offices nationwide, serves its Chicago area clients from its Northside location, located at 5439 North Broadway. They provide housing, social services, education, basic human needs, and food security. The Syrian Community Network has Arabic-speaking staff and is a partner organization of the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights. You can get more info by calling area code 872-806-0141. That's area code 872-806-0141. 0141 or by visiting their website at syriancommunitynetwork.org A boy born in Joplin, Missouri was fascinated by anything with wheels and a motor. The odds of him going on to fascinate millions with his talent one in 260,000. The odds of him having 15 career NASCAR victories one in 1.7 million. The odds of a child being diagnosed with autism one in 88. I'm Jamie McMurray, and my niece has autism. Learn more at autismspeaks.org signs. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. My name is Sue Smith. I'm 38, and I work at a graphic design company. And the teenage me would tell you I wouldn't be into drawing and art if it wasn't for Big Brother's Big Sisters. My big sister showed me early on that I could do anything. And to the young me, that meant a lot. My big sister's name is Sheila, and Sheila is the reason that this 8-year-old grows up to have an amazing job as a graphic designer. Whether you donate money or time, you're helping Big Brother's Big Sisters help a child. Start something today at BigBrothersBigSisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brother's Big Sisters and the Ad Council. Radio Islam, 
the nation's first daily live call-in talk radio show produced by Muslims for the mainstream market. Radio Islam, on the air since 2004 because of your generosity. Radio Islam salutes its most valuable asset, you, our listener. From our producers to our interns, we appreciate your support. Thank you. Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq el and we are still broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming live at WCEV1450.com. Remember, folks, you can keep up with us on social media, and you can also find us wherever you get your podcast by looking for us at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. And we're going to get back into our conversation because the time is just a ticking. Um, our guest tonight is Naima B. Robert, uh, author of Multicultural Literature, founding editor of the UK-based Muslim women's publication, Sisters Magazine, um, and author of, among many other titles, Black Sheep, uh, which we've been talking about. And, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, uh, Sister Naima? Yeah. Okay, great, great. Sorry great. about that. No, no problem. Mm, I'm here. It was like right on time. We just went right to break, so <laughs> it just I'm worked out. <laughs> um, but yeah, all the things you mentioned, just in terms of how uh, young uh, black males often are engaged in mm-hmm. educational uh, spaces, not mm-hmm. fully embraced, not fully recognized, and mm-hmm. how they find themselves often uh, pushed out or... Uh, yeah. disengaged and that's something that is n- that is I mean you were writing from the uh, uh, from the the, the UK um, uh, community uh, black youth there but this is something mm-hmm. that we also see taking place right here in the US mm-hmm. yeah so I thought that was really yes exactly yeah that was a really great connection and this, is, this connection. is the thing is that you know in that scene where his internal voice is is being well, his, his, his consciousness is being pricked. His conscience is being pricked. And his consciousness is being aroused by the conversations he's having with Misha. So she, you know, and, and he talks about, he says how, you know, she, just, she doesn't get it, you know? Like, I know what the school is about. Tony says, schools are a holding cell for black boys like us, okay? Mm-hmm. Because it's basically a holding cell until jail. And that's, that's, that's very much indicative of how uh, the schooling experience is seen by a lot of black boys in this country. And so when he does actually put in the effort and ace the test, the teacher doesn't believe that he did it. So there's a big scene in there where the teachers are saying, I know you cheated, you know, you're not capable of this kind of work, da 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 And of course, you know, he, he can't deal with that. He blows up and then he ends up in the, in the head teacher's office. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's, it is indicative of the types of schooling experiences that, unfortunately, a lot of our black boys do face in the UK and obviously in the US as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what's up? What is what is coming next for you? Uh, are you working on a, on a new um, book? Because you, you, basically you've said that you've you've pretty much written you've, you've released a new um, book each year. 
I have done that until a couple of years ago. I was very fortunate to have a mashallah, fantastic run. Mm-hmm. I'm overdue now. I've, I have <laughs> a couple of uh, children's books coming out next year. Okay. Um, but She Wore Red Trainers was my last novel, and that's about three years old now. So um, I, I have, have two that, um, well, I'm not really kind of, I'm not in a writing space right now, certainly not for a YA novel, because they are very, they're, they're, they're quite intense to work on. Mm-hmm. But I do want to tell the story of the East African slave trade, because, mm. like I said, again, it's an untold story. Yeah. Most people know nothing about it. And it really, it's, it's a different, it's a different flavor completely. It's a different type of pain. It's a different type of displacement. And the effect on the African continent is, I feel, better documented. Mm-hmm. Because that's that's another point as well, is uh, you know, for me personally as an African, um, I I really want to over the next couple of years, God gives me life, to do much more work on writing about Africa, present day Africa and African history for children because there is just a vacuum when it comes to literature for for children based in Africa or about Africa, present day or historically. So that's something that I want to do more research into. Um, and then the other one is I want to write a dystopic novel. However, mm-hmm. real world events keep taking over my dystopia, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> because I had, this, I had this idea to write a story set in the future in, in the UK mm-hmm. where, you know, Muslims are banned from traveling. Um, you know, uh, they're not allowed into the country. They're not allowed out of the country. Um, you know, in schools, only sort of, Four pillars of Islam are taught, and if you say there are five pillars, you can get, you know, taken by, by, by government forces. And I had all this, you know, and I thought it was really kind of, you know, yeah, really good, until, of course, I realized that actually it's far worse than that. And, you know, the real-life events have completely overtaken what the book was actually supposed to be about. And it's really scary because you, dystopian novels like 1984, for example, and, right. you know, the modern-day versions like Hunger Games, etc., Dystopic novels show us the worst version of a future world, right? But mm-hmm. they're always based on something that's already happening. Always. 1984 was based on the idea of totalitarianism and communism gone wrong and, and all of that stuff, right? And, you know, same with uh, Hunger Games and the Divergent and this huge slew of, of, of uh, dystopic novels that came out. There's always something based on what's happening now. If you look at what's happening now, mm-hmm. how can it get worse? Like, how can it get worse and still not, you know, read like some kind of weird fantasy? But it's it's something that I struggle with. So I'm I'm not sure really where, where to go with that one. But I would like to be able to tell the story of this brother and sister um, who are taken as captives and sold in Zanzibar. Because, yeah, it's it's a, it's a, it's a really rich story and, and something that I think deserves to be told. I've got to add on to that. We talk about dystopian um fantasies and how our reality is far eclipsing mm-hmm. uh, our imagination in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I just read a story that uh, in Denmark, they have uh, passed a law there are requiring that children uh, of Muslim parents, Muslim children, yes. that they yeah. have to yeah. uh, they have to go through an education process to uh, learn about wow. Christianity. Uh, at least 25 hours mm-hmm. out of the week, they must be separated from their families. That seems like wow. that is straight out of one of those dystopian, you know, futures that mm-hmm. um, that yeah. we just would never believe uh, would, would would actually yeah. happen. 
So yeah, it is. It is. I mean, if you look at the dis- thing is, we're living the dystopia of the fifties. Mm-hmm. So if you or the thirties even, because the Handmaid's Tale, for example, um, you know the uh, the the um, obviously nineteen eighty four, my absolute favorite, mm-hmm. um, but also others. You know, A Brave New World and in other novels that people wrote that at the time seemed outlandish. Mm-hmm. That could never happen. We would never allow ourselves to become that. We would never allow ourselves to, to, to do that to each other because we've learned so many lessons from World War One and from fascism and World War Two and Nazism and all of that. Mm-hmm. But the lessons of history keep repeating themselves again and again and again. And it seems to me that fascism just keeps rearing its head again and again and again. Just and the whole othering mm-hmm. of the minority. You see what they did in, uh, in 1984. Um, they had these proxy wars, or these fake wars, actually, mm-hmm. that weren't even wars. And at some, uh, sometimes they were on, this, on the side of Eurasia, I think it was, and then other times they're on Oceania's side, or I can't remember the names now. Mm-hmm. But the point is that the government was controlling the news, Right. Uh, what people knew about what was happening and what wasn't happening. The government had basically locked the whole system down so that everybody was under surveillance. You know, anyway, we don't have to go into yeah. like all the, <laughs> the discussions about 1984 and how it actually foretold CCTV and all of that stuff and Facebook and all of that. But, you know, when it comes to sort of Muslim reality, it's difficult to imagine it getting any worse without falling into Holocaust. Right. Without falling into internment camps, you know, without mass deportations, mass extermination. You, you, I, I can't see creatively how you could bridge the gap between what's happening now and basically what happened to the Jews in the Second World War. I, I can't see it. And the idea that this, these um, unsettling reality or unsettling possibilities mm-hmm. uh, for people would normally be enough for us to look at where we are right now to make sure mm-hmm. that we don't mm-hmm. go down that path. But the fact mm-hmm. is, as, as you mentioned, we're in a time where, um, where children seeking asylum, uh, where families seeking mm-hmm. asylum are being separated, children taken from the parents and, uh, and, and turned back around. And um, mm-hmm. uh, there, there's a whole demonization of those people who are most vulnerable. Uh, and yeah, you know, it, it speaks that the reality that we're in, in a lot of ways, it is worse than than a lot of what we thought well, we thought we yeah. could have imagined. So, yeah, yeah. Let me ask this, um, because I don't want uh, our time to go by without also talking about the Muslima Writers Journey uh, online summit. Summit. Uh, so please tell well, us tell us a bit about that. I am just so excited about this summit. It's starting on Friday, mm-hmm. and it is an amazing panel, an amazing platform of Muslim writers from different backgrounds, uh, different walks of life, different countries, different genres um, within the Muslim writing space who graciously have all come together, you know, and been so kind and said, yes, I'll do it for you, Naima, you know, <laughs> to come together to teach. Yes. To share their experiences, to share what they've learned, and to give advice to the next generation of Muslim writers. And I really, for me, this ritual of passing on what you have, mm-hmm. of each one teach one, of paying it forward, 
is so important to me for the growth of our communities. Because when we don't have that mindset, that abundance mindset, the mindset of this is a gift that I have been granted, it's been bestowed on me, and it's upon me to share this privilege. Because at the end of the day, I, I, this is something that just the point, but I just really love this idea that if you have a gift, mm-hmm. and if you've been given the opportunity to share that gift, so you've published author, for example, right. you're privileged, right? Right. Love to be in your place. So as Muslims, it's upon us to realize that we are privileged and we are in a privileged position. And that privilege should come with humility and a sense of duty to make the way easier for others, to pave the way for others. So if you're, if you're a, a forebearer, if you're a pioneer in a particular field, mm-hmm. it's upon you to pave the way for others, to make it easier for others to follow in your footsteps. I really believe that. So this summit, we are treating it like a, a walk through the Muslim writer's journey. So on day one, we talk about, you know, why we write, uh, how we write, uh, the mindset needed to be able to write freely, how to find your voice, you know, a lot of mindset things. Mm-hmm. And then we go into day two, we start talking about different genres. So we've interviewed sisters who write on children's books, YA, nonfiction, uh, historical nonfiction, creative nonfiction, if you like. Um, and, and for different age groups and different markets as well. And then we've also gone into publishing options mm-hmm. and what it's like to work with major publishers, you know, how to choose which self-publishing option is right for you, how to make it work for you. And we also talk about why you need to build an author platform and how to market your books and how to you know, collaborate with other authors. So it's really kind of a wide-ranging uh, view on the writing journey, but right from beginning to end. And How that's happening from Friday to Monday. Yeah. Fr- from Friday to Monday. Wow. Yeah. That that's that sounds amazing. And you know what I didn't ask you uh, at the outset? Mm. Um, what was your uh, foray into writing? Well, how did you how did you get your start? <laughs> uh, I had uh, my first son and I grew up with books. So I've always loved reading. Um, I never thought I'd be a writer, though. Uh, but when I was uh, when I had my first son, we used to go to the library every week, and we got out. You know, I just I I have a massive soft spot for children's books. Anybody who trains with me knows that I just love children's books so much. <laughs> so we used to get children's books galore from the library. But the thing that bothered me was that there were no books, especially at the time, that reflected my son's identity and reflected our our values or our life because. At that time, we were talking about 18 years ago now, mm-hmm. uh, there were very, very, very few people of color in books, period. Okay, right. uh, And then we couldn't find any books about Muslims or Islamic life or Islamic culture or Islamic values that could in any way match what we were getting from the so-called mainstream uh, authors. Right. And that really was what pushed me. I wanted to write books that were beautiful. Mm. Books that children would be awed by, whether it was the illustrations, whether it was the language, whether it was the journey that they're taken on in the story. So when you look at my children's books, you'll notice that I have a very particular style. Um, I, I'm not the, the I'm not the type of author that usually, very very rarely, will you find me telling a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end mm-hmm. with little Ali who did this and then he went to school and he did that. 
that's just not my thing. I'm much more into prose poetry in children's books. That's just my bestsellers. I've all been Ramadan Moon is like that. Going to Mecca is like that. Mabruk is like that. The Swirling Hijab is like that. That's just the style that I prefer because I really wanted to bring the beauty of the language and the beauty of the storytelling uh, mm-hmm. for Muslim children. And that's really how I got started in terms of starting to write. And then I was fortunate enough, mashallah, to be picked up by a bilingual publisher called Mantra. Mm-hmm. And they published The Swirling Hijab. And we did many books together after that because they, they, they thought that I had a talent and they wanted more diverse voices. So at that time, and I probably still am one of the very few Niqabi authors, actually, that publishes with sort of mainstream uh, publishers. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, of course, I was a real novelty. Uh, and just Muslim voices <laughs> in general were a real novelty. So alhamdulillah, there was alhamdulillah. a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, excitement about that and uh, a lot of openness to uh, a, a Muslim telling Muslim stories. You know, to a black person mm-hmm. telling stories about people of color. You know, because before that, it was mainly white people who would tell those stories if they were required. So that's how I got started, really. And I just wrote loads of children's books until I wrote uh, From My Sister's Lips. And then the novels came off that. Alhamdulillah. I could not not, uh, not take the opportunity to ask that very important question. Uh, So thank you so much for answering that one. No, Uh, no worries. And if you would, because we're getting down to our last couple of minutes, can you tell folks how they can uh, plug into the Muslima Writers Journey Online Summit again uh, really quickly? Most most definitely. I hope that you guys will share the link on your, on your Twitter will. and your, your, all your social accounts. Certainly. But if, uh, if uh, anybody wants to sign up, it's open to all Muslimas and, um, and any sister that wants to benefit should just go to bit.ly slash Muslima Writers Summit and you can sign up for free and uh, you'll get a welcome email to check your spam folders. And uh, you can also get an all access pass, uh, which gives you lifetime access to all the talks notes, resources, as well as uh, a membership site that we're building for Muslim authors. So we've got lots going on. But if you check on uh, my socials at Naima B. Roberts, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, you can see the program and you will see the lineup. Uh, and it's really, mashallah, really is quite some, something really special. So I pray that Allah accepts it for all the wonderful authors uh, and, and gives it all the barakah. Inshallah. Amen. Well, uh, Sister Naima, it has been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, we'll pray for your continued uh, success. Thank you. We will definitely go ahead and share those links. Uh, feel free to tag us um, as well. And well, um, uh, at this point, uh, Radio Song family, we've got to go ahead and get out of here. So we're going to go ahead and thank our engineer over at WCEV, Ramon. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, we thank our engineer in studio, the impressive one, Ibrahim Beg. I'm your host and producer, Tariq Alameen. Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. We remind you that the views expressed by the host and our guests are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of the Sound Vision Foundation, even though it's all good. Uh, but now, we're going to go ahead and leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Thank you.